Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 4, just very quickly. We won't spend much time reviewing this morning because we've been on this subject for quite a while. We're obviously talking about worship, and the pattern or the, the, the foundation is in John chapter 4 where Jesus has an encounter with a woman at the well, and the woman comes out with her water pot to do her everyday affairs, and then she sits down and has an encounter with a man. And in the process of this conversation, gradually who he is is revealed to her. So her first understanding of him is he's a Jew. And she's amazed because Jews don't talk to, to Samaritans, and especially Samaritan women, but this Jew is. And then in the course of their conversation, he begins to reveal things about her, and she, her understanding of who he is begins to be lifted, and she says, I realize you're not just a Jew, you're a prophet. And by the end of the conversation, which we haven't gotten to in verse 25 yet, she starts talking about the Messiah, and the ultimate revelation is given to her. And she, he says to her, the one to whom you're talking is he. And so what we've likened it to is when we come to church, we're coming in out of our daily lives, out of our daily routines, and we're coming in here with issues of life on our mind, just as she was carrying a water pot, the stuff of everyday life, crucial stuff, vital stuff to life, water is. And so that's, and we have issues of our lives that are vital to us, things in our family, it may be your health, your finances, concerns for other people, whatever it may be, that are real and true and genuine needs in our lives and they're vital to us. And we come in here carrying them just as she carried that water pot. But unless we understand the opportunity that God gives to us, we'll may get the water pot filled up and leave here with some natural needs taken care of, and we will have no idea of the opportunity that we had because she was coming into the presence of God himself. And when we come in here, we, I know God lives in us, and I know we have our own fellowship with him, but when you come corporately together as a group, there's an entirely different opportunity. There's an entirely different uh, dynamic that takes place. And what we have the opportunity every time we come here to have an encounter with the living God. Imagine what he can do in our lives. Imagine what they can, that can, he can do for us to have an encounter with him. And that's the opportunity we have every time we come together. But unless we know that, unless we're anticipating that, unless we're sensitive to, it, to that, we miss it. We come in here, we may have a good time, we may be bored, we may felt we've lived our, fulfilled our religious duty, and then we've left not understanding that God was waiting here for us to meet the needs that you have. But the greatest need we have is to fill that inner longing which she had. And he said to her, I have living water for you that if you ask of me, I will give it to you. And if you have this living water in you, it will satisfy every need you will ever have. And not only that, it will be a source of that water in you. So when you leave this well here and you leave this mountain and you go home, you'll still have this source. When you leave church, you'll still have that living water available inside of you. So that's what we've been looking at. Jesus talks about worship with her because it's the key to all of that. And in it, he talks about this concept of true worshiper, someone that worships in spirit and in truth. And we looked at what that meant. We looked at in spirit because he goes on to explain because God is a spirit. Therefore, those who are worshiping must worship him. There's no other way in spirit and truth because that's the realm in which he lives. So the Holy Spirit's involved in this worship process because he's the one that opens our spiritual eyes to see into that spirit realm, to sense him. It's not something that happens 
happens with your mind. It's not something that happens with your emotions. See, worship is not in your emotions. Praise can be in your emotions. Thanksgiving and other songs can be in your emotions. But worship is a spirit-to-spirit communion and enjoyment of that union. And we spent quite a bit of time looking at that. And then in truth, what does that mean? And we saw that because worship is a response to seeing who God is and then seeing who we are in comparison to him on our own. We saw Isaiah in chapter 6. Isaiah is brought up into the throne room of God. And he gets to see God, whether it's a vision or physically, we don't know. But he gets to see God in all his glory and majesty. And his first reaction is to fall down and begin to worship. And then he begins to see himself for who he is. And he says, woe is me. And Isaiah was a very righteous man, but compared to God, nobody is. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And so true worship is seeing those things. And so in order to do that, we have to be walking in truth. And we've looked at the concept of truth means nothing's hidden. That means nothing's hidden about who God is. So we've got to be willing to set aside our preconceived ideas about who God is and what he's like ones that we were taught as a child, ones that we've developed, and some of those we want to hold on to because that means that we have excuses for certain things. We've got to be willing to let them go and allow the Spirit of God to reveal to us who God is. And then we've got to be willing to look at the truth about ourselves and allow the Spirit of God. That's not fun. You know, when you pray for something, be ready for God to answer it. And since my part of my responsibility is to lead you somewhere, God starts doing it with me first. And this has begun to become uncomfortable to me because he's starting to shine lights down inside of me in little attitudes. No, no sin in the world, but attitudes. Things I don't like to see, but they're the truth. But as I begin to look at them, then I begin to appreciate his grace and mercy all the more. See, if you think you're some great hotshot with God, you don't need his mercy. It's only when you see yourself how God sees you under the light of his truth that you realize how merciful and gracious God has been to you. And then we can worship him. And so we've been looking at aspects of God. All right, if God, if worship is a response to seeing who God is, what does the Bible say about who God is? Well, we've seen, first of all, he's the creator of all things. Secondly, we've seen he's holy. Third, we've seen he's Adonai, he's Lord. He is the ultimate authority. And that means he has absolute right of authority over everyone's life and over everything. Absolute authority means you have only two choices. When God says something, you either obey or or you disobey. There's no middle ground. I'm not in the process of getting there. I either obey or I disobey. And we've seen when we have a different attitude, we can't truly worship him for who he is because part of who he is is Adonai. And if we're not responding to him as Lord, how can we worship him as Lord? Jesus said, you call me Lord, Lord. Many of you call me Lord, Lord, but I don't even know you. And you say, I do great works in your name. I sing wonderful songs. I give wonderful praises. I do miracles in your name. He says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In other words, how do you call me Lord when you're your own Lord? So when we live a life and an attitude that's contrary to his lordship, his writers, Adonai, how can we true, truly worship him? And then last week we begin to look at another aspect of God. 
And that's in 1 John chapter 4. We, it's introduced, and we're not going to go back there. It's in, um, it's in John chapter uh, 3, the most, one of the most famous verses of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believed them should not perish but have everlasting life. So we've begun to look at another aspect of God, which is that God is love. And we won't spend long here, but I just want to read through these verses, verse, starting verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Love comes out of God. Just as we saw in Romans 13, 1, that all authority comes out of God, because God isn't authority. All authority comes from Him. He's the source of authority. Why? Because He's Adonai. He is Lord. He's the creator of everything. In the same way, God is love, and therefore all love at this level, not human love, not friendship love, not erotic love, but all love in the sense of of agape love, all love on the highest plane that we talked about last time, that only can come out of God because God is that. He's not full of love. He is love. It's His nature. It's who He is. He cannot help Himself. He doesn't love you because you're so lovable. He loves you because He can't help Himself. Because it's his nature. He cannot act contrary to love. Now, how that love is applied may not look loving to you. But it always is love. Therefore, if it doesn't look loving to me, it's my lack of understanding, not some fault on his part. Because James 1 says that every good and precious gift comes from the Father above with whom there is no variableness or shadow of turning. In other words, whatever comes from God is good because God can't change. There's no wavering in Him. He doesn't have moods. So you have to get on His good side. I had to do with that my mother. I had to get on her good side. And I was the oldest child at five, so I was the expert at how to do that. And if you didn't do it right, you knew that. Well, God's not like that. You don't have to be afraid of Him. But not everything God does out of love may look loving to you, but it is. So you have to decide that it is loving and change your understanding. And then you'll find the Spirit of God is able to do that with you. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So we saw last week, you can be born of God and not know Him. And that's where a lot of Christians are. They're born of Him because they put their faith in Christ, but they don't know God because they don't know that love because God is love. All right, so we're going to move on from here. Then we look, took a look in Ephesians. And we saw in Ephesians chapter 2, where, where, where we went, walked all the way through Ephesians chapter 1. And we saw that everything that God did in there, all the blessings that He gave us, was in love. And then we went into chapter 2, and we saw that, 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 uh, that we were dead in our sins and transgressions, dead being separated from God, the source of life. We were dead in them. We were without any hope. And we lived according to the course of this world and lived among the sons of disobedience, which is what we were also. And then we saw that wonderful verse 4, But God. But God. You were dead, but God. We were without hope in this world, but God. And then we saw, because he talks about how he made us alive together with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly places, but we saw the key in that verse, but God, and we looked at the Amplified, in order to satisfy the great and intense love with which he loved us. He saved you because he loved you. Wow. 
He's done, I remember one time just, just really praying about some things about God. I want to do this and I want to surrender. And I'm thank you that you did this in my life and you've done this for me. And I thank you for all these things for you. And I heard so clearly, why did I do them? Okay. Because he said, you're getting, you're talking about the thing, what I've done, but you're not talking about the heart with which I did it. And he said, well, why did you do it? He says, because I love you. And it blew me away. I was so busy looking at the things God had done and the things that God had called us to do and surrendering things to Him, I forgot why He did them. The very motive with which God's done everything. Then we looked at more than that. God didn't just save you because He loved you. He paid for the price of your sins so that He could legally give you His own Son's righteousness. And the reason He gave you His own Son's righteousness is so that you and I could be Come sons and daughters of the living God. And we saw that he did that. He called us to himself as his sons and daughters. And then we went over to chapter 3 of Ephesians and we saw where God, Paul's prayer for the church was that God would strengthen them by their, his spirit in their inner man, that Christ could dwell in their hearts by faith. And this was what we looked at, that being rooted and grounded in his love for us. And we looked at grounded means you've, your life is based on, standing on, trusting in as its ultimate foundation, the revelation of God's love for you. And then rooted in that love is like the root of an oak tree. It's a taproot that goes deep down and draws its strength. It draws its refreshment. It draws its life source, not from the rain that flows, falls or doesn't fall on the surface, from the circumstances of life, but draws its life from the deep source of water, the deep source of nutrition that that taproot finds when it goes down deep in that soil, which is why those oak trees can stand through a drought and not dry up because their source of water is it's not the rain that falls. It's whatever deep source they found. And most Christians, most of us have drawing our life support, our strength, our, our, our well-being from the circumstances of life that's around us. That's whatever falls on the ground around us. But Jesus, Paul is saying, no, I, my prayer is that you become rooted, rooted in the love that God has for you. And then he goes on to say, and only to, once you do that, only then can you come to truly know the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of God that passes understanding. We can't truly know the love that, that, will, that will love the unlovable, that will love the, the, the downcast on the streets of, of any slum and reach out to them. We can't understand that until we've begun to be rooted and grounded in ourselves. And then we ended in Romans 8. And we saw where Paul talks about what he was, had become persuaded of. I'm persuaded that neither life nor death, whether I live or die, I'm persuaded to whether I'm dealing with an angel or demon or principality or power. I'm persuaded that whether I'm living on the top of a mountain that everything's going well or I'm living down in the valley and I'm lost and confused and in the fog. I'm persuaded that whether I'm dealing with things present or whatever the future may be, I'm persuaded of this. I'm persuaded by my life's experience. I'm persuaded through my walk with God, through all kinds of these things happening to me. I'm persuaded that nothing that's ever been created can ever separate me from what I become grounded in and rooted in as the source of my security, and that's God's love for me. Paul had had a revelation of the part of God that is what his love is truly like. 
a verse we didn't cover, which is in 1 John chapter 3, because we ran out of time last week, is behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. That word manner of means what different kind of. What unusual, special, different kind of love God as Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called sons and daughters of the living God. And goes on to say that when He comes back, we're going to recognize Christ as He is because we're going to see that just as He is in the so are we in the world. We're going to recognize that we're both children of God. Wow. Well, we're going to continue on this morning in the time we have left. And we're going to look at this aspect because it takes a revelation. It takes a revelation. And that the way, well, I can't make a revelation happen. No, but I can create the atmosphere in which it does. I can give the revelator, the revealer, the Holy Spirit, the materials with which to work, which is in this book. And it's not just reading scriptures about his love, it's meditating on them. That's the part we can do. You can meditate and meditate and meditate and meditate. and med- Just take one verse. Just take one verse. Take that uh, Ephesians 2.4. But God, because of the great love with which he loved me. Take 1 John 3.1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon me. And meditate on that. Make it yours. To po- work it down in your heart. And there'll come a point where the Spirit of God is able to ignite that and it goes off in you. And you see it in here, not here. Well, we're going to look at some things that can help us do it because we're going to look this morning in the little time we have left, we're going to look at Jesus' understanding of the Father's love for Him. So let's go over to, um, let's go over to Luke 3 quickly. We won't be there long. At least I don't think so. Jesus has been walking on this earth for three year, 30, 30 years He's about to begin his public ministry. And he comes to over the, to the river where John is baptizing. Verse 21. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus was also baptized. And while he prayed, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came out of heaven and said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Now as we go through some of these scriptures... Don't listen to these as scriptures. Listen to these as a father talking to his son or, or, or to his child. So if you happen to be a woman, your father talking to you or you're as a mother talking to your children. Because this is a father talking to his beloved son. Notice he doesn't say, this doesn't say, and, and, and the voice came from heaven and said, this is my, this is my faithful servant. He was faithful, but the father speaks to him as a son. And the, I almost hear in this pride. I almost hear he's, he's at the point of baptism. The Holy Spirit is now descended upon him, and it's almost like God just can't be still. It's almost he can't be silent. You ever been, if you've ever been a, a parent at, a, at, a, at a, something at school where your child's performing... You know, it's interesting here at school, when we, at school here at SCA, when we have some kind of talent show or function, you know, the parents don't just sit there. They'll come up with their phones now. and can't, You know, they can't sit, sit still. They've got to do something. Oh, wait, wait, Johnny, that's my son, you know. That's, my son. that's what God's doing here. That's him. That's my beloved. That's my boy. 
that's him. And you notice, now look, this is so important. You notice the evidence of his approval is he sent the Holy Spirit upon him. You go over into Galatians chapter 4. It says, because you are sons, God sent forth his spirit into you. The same way God's spirit sent forth into this son was the evidence of his approval. God's spirit sent forth into you as a son or daughter. Paul says in Galatians 4 is that his evidence of his approval of you as a son and daughter. So he says to you, Patricia, that's my beloved daughter. Link, that's my beloved son. That Mark, that's my beloved son. You need to look in the mirror in the morning and say, I'm his beloved child. So that's being prideful. No, it's taking the word because that, that doesn't mean we always act that way, but that's who you are. And this is the father saying, that's my boy. So don't just hear these scriptures. This is a father talking to his son and then a son talking back to his daughter. His, his son. Father, excuse me. Son talking back to his father. Okay, let's go over to um, John chapter 3. Now it's interesting, so many of these verses are in John. Because John had an understanding of an aspect of Jesus that I'm not sure the other disciples had a true revelation of. Isn't it interesting, and this is not something I thought of, I heard this from another minister. Peter, who was so confident in how much he loved Jesus, when the rubber hit the road, so did Peter. (laughs) The only one still with Jesus when he was nailed to the cross was not the one who was so confident in how much he loved Jesus. He was the one that always referred to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. So his confidence was not in how much he loved Jesus. His confidence was in how much Jesus loved him. Isn't that good? That could change your life, just the revelation of that. So it's important for you to know how much he loves you. Here in his love, not that we first loved him, we looked at this last week, but that he first loved us. Our love for him is a response. Everything we do for him is a response to seeing who he is and what he's given to us. All right, I've got to move on. First John chapter 3, very short verse, verse 35. Because he's talking before about things the Father has given. He gives the Spirit without measure. Verse 35. For the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. This is John's writing. This is not Jesus' words. These are John's writing. Obviously, the Holy Spirit inspired. For the Father loves the Son... And the ev- every time we're going to see something about one of them loving each other, they did something to act on it. And there's a whole message in that. That love acts. Love's not an emotion. Love is an act of your will. And love, this kind of love, has to do something to express it. 
It's not conscious of itself. See, when you're walking, when you're looking at how, am I really walking in love or not? You're not. Because when you're looking at whether you're walking in love or not, guess who you're looking at? You. Do you understand your eye is not conscious of itself? It's only conscious of what it's looking at. So your eye is always outward focused and never unless you get something in it and you got to, but you still got to go to a mirror to see that. Your eye's role is only to look outward, never to examine it itself. And in the same way, love is intended to always look outward, never be conscious of itself. All right. We could spend a series on almost each one of these verses. Let's go over to chapter 5, John chapter 5. We'll pick up in verse 19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. Now we're looking at the relationship of the Father and the Son here. This is, this is, this is Jesus who is open blind eyes. This is Jesus who has opened deaf ears. This is Jesus who has raised, not at this point too, but at least one person from the dead, the widow's son at name. This is Jesus who's walked on water. This is Jesus who's fed 5,000 men, let alone the families, with a little boy's lunch, and then he did it again with 4,000. This is Jesus who has spoken to storms and they stopped, who has... Who has done things that John says at the end, if we, got, if we tried to put them all in books, the world couldn't contain the books. This is that Jesus that they stand in awe of, and this is how he sees himself. Verse 19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but whatever he sees the Father do, for, but, but for whatever he does, the Son does in like manner. So that means that Jesus' focus all the time was on his Father. No matter what he's doing, his inner eyes are always on his Father. His inner ears are always listening to his Father, and he has no ambition of his own. Boy, wouldn't a psychologist have fun with that? This boy has been so suppressed... He's got, you know, this is what happened under Dr. Spock. You've got to foster their, you know, their, 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 their ego in their, their drive so that they can express themselves. Well, I've been around some of those kids that learned how to express themselves. And they're still expressing themselves. And that's right, they're expressing themselves. And we have this deception that in order to be fully developed, you have to have your own ways and fulfill your own desires and your own plans and your own dreams. But if you're a Christian, you gave all that up. That's not too popular to hear in the church today because church is all about empowering people to find their dreams and purpose and fulfill their purpose. But that's not scriptural because I can tell you what your purpose is. Your purpose is to die to who you are. That'll clean a church out fast. But it's the truth. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. We want Christ living in us, but we don't want to die in order to have that happen. Paul says in Philippians 2, his prayer is that he would know him. 
But he didn't stop there. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering that he may be conformed to his death. Death to what? Death to himself. Death to his ego. Death to his self-will. Death. Jesus had to deal with that. Not my will, but your will be done in the garden. Three times he went over that. We've got to come to the place where we're willing to die to who we are and what we want in order to be born again into who he is and let him begin to live his life in us and through us. And I guarantee you it's an exchange you will never regret. It's an exchange you will never regret. He was willing to exchange his life for yours. Are we willing to exchange our life for his? That's part of worship. All right. How do we get off on that? Oh, my goodness. Oh, I was saying a psychologist would have fun with him because he's been so pressed down by his father, so controlled by his father. But you see, this is his will to do this. This is out of love for his father. This is not manipulation. This is not because he's been so pressed down. This is because of his deep love for his father. Every desire of his father is what is now his desire. When you love somebody, you want to please them. You want to see the best for them. You want to see what they want done. And what I want you to see by these interactions is what Jesus' submission to his Father's will was as a response to his Father's love for him. See, he had an unrestricted view of his Father. He didn't have to get rid of all those old images and those things you and I have to get rid of. He had an unrestricted view of his Father of his Father's love, of his Father's goodness, of his Father's authority, of his Father's glory and majesty. So we're trying to get a little glimpse of this through his eyes. All right. Verse 20. For the Father loves the Son. Notice he said the Son can do nothing of himself, but whatever he sees the Father do, that's what he does. And, what, and he does this same in the same manner. Somewhere else we're not going to get into. He says, I only, I only say what I hear my Father say. Look at this, verse 20. For the Father loves the Son. So he's doing this because the Father loves him, and this is a response to the revelation of his Father's love for him. Verse 20 then goes on to say, and and because the Father loves the Son, he shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed that judgment to the Son. Now let's, let's go over to verse... Um, so what this sees is the Son, has, in response to His Father's love, has submitted His life to Him, to do His Father's will, to please Him, This is why Jesus says a little later in John 14, He says, if you love me, you will get excited and jump and run and shout in church. If you love me, tears will flow down your cheeks. If you love me, you will tell me that you love me. And those are all true, but He said the ultimate proof that you love me is that you keep my commandments. And we've talked about that before. It's kind of like 
a, a, a man and woman when they first kind of fall in love with each other and, and you know, he stands there and looks in her eyes and with all sincerity says, I love you. I love you so much. And he's sincere. He means it. All the emotions there. And she hears that and she looks back at him and says, oh, dear, I love you too. But they're not talking about the same thing. When he says, I love you, he just means I want you. He may not even understand what he's saying. He just says, all I know is you're, the, you're gorgeous. You're beautiful. I, I, what I see attracts me, and I want, you for my, I want you for mine. She hears I love you is, you're making a life commitment to me. And you are forsaking all others. Because it's not that I want you for me, I want me to belong to you. So they say the same word, but they have a very different understanding. And so when Jesus hears, when Jesus says, I love you, he means I've already given everything for you. And I've done it so you can belong to me, lock, stock, and barrel. And when we say, I love you, we mean, wow, you're wonderful. I gotta go do something else. When can we see each other again? Next Sunday? Okay, we got a date. <laughs> and we come back here on our date with him and say, wow, this is a wonderful experience. We had a nice, you know, nice, nice dinner together. We saw a nice movie together. Wasn't this wonderful experience? Could I, well, can I, well, let's see, Wednesday night, maybe I can meet you Wednesday night. We have this nice date. But in the meantime, I go hang out with my friends. I'd go do what I want to do, but I love him, I love her, because I see her. That's why Jesus says, if you love me, the evidence of your love is the commitment that you've made to me, that you keep my commandments. Jesus was doing this with the Father because he loved the Father. Not because he had to, not because he was forced to, not because he was suppressed as a child, but because he loved the Father back in response to knowing and a revelation of the Father's love for him. Well, we'll look a little more at this. Because there's some other words that get involved. Let's go over and look in um, verse 37. So Jesus' entire motive was to honor the Father and to please the Father. Let's look look at verse um, 37. And the Father himself who sent me, he's talking to the Pharisees, has testified of me, and you have neither heard his voice at any time nor have seen his form, but you do not have his his word abiding in you because whom he sent you don't believe, which is him. Look at this, verse 39. You search the scriptures. You carry your Bible around, and you listen to tapes and CDs and podcasts and all that, For in them you think you have eternal life by carrying your Bible around and by reading it. And these there are that testify of me. In other words, the scriptures that you have testify of me. But you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. So what Jesus is saying there is you have the scriptures and you honor the scriptures 
In our case, we have the Bible. We read our Bible, and we respect our Bible, and we, you know, listen to stuff. But he says the whole purpose of the Scriptures was they point you to me. So you have the Scriptures, but you've missed the purpose of it because they point you to a relationship with me. Verse 40, but you're not willing to come to me to have life. I do, this is, he's going to talk about his relationship with God here. I do not receive honor from men. There were some that tried to give him honor and some that tried to disparage him and it didn't matter because he didn't receive his honor from men. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I came in my Father's name and you did not receive me. That was the proof they didn't have the love of the Father in them because they didn't recognize Him for who He was. If another comes in His own name, Him you'll receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and don't seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, and that's Moses, in whom you trust. He's saying, because you, because you receive, are trying to get honor from each other, you don't recognize the one to whom you should be giving honor to. Why? Because you don't know him. You've not yet had that revelation. You have those scriptures, but you've turned them into laws and rules and things you have to keep. You've turned them into a legalism. And you think because you have those that you have eternal life. But those point to me, a living relationship, a love relationship with me that I have with the Father. And because, you'll see later on, we may not get to all the scriptures today, because of his love for the Father, his whole heart's desire was to honor the Father. When you truly love somebody, you want to honor them and respect them. Not because you have to, but it's an expression of your love for them out of your heart, which is why it says in, the, in the, one of the Old Testament, one of the laws of the Ten Commandments, is you shall honor your father and your mother. Why? They gave you life. And that's not just some duty, that's an expression of your love for them. We've got to move along here. Verse, uh, chapter, John chapter 17. We'll come back here. Verse uh, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you've given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Talking about the Father's love for him. You may want to keep something here because we'll come back here. Now let's go over to Matthew 19. We're going to look at Jesus' eyes towards his Father and his attitude towards his Father. Matthew 19. Jesus has an encounter with a, a rich young ruler who was sincere and wanted to know what it took to get into the kingdom of God. Verse 16. 
Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. If you want to enter the life, then keep his commandments. Notice Jesus' attitude. Someone comes to him in out of sincerity, he says, Good teacher. He's not even saying great and wonderful one. Good teacher, and Jesus stops him and says, No, 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 you, wait a minute. I'm not good in myself. This is Jesus we're talking about. Who never sinned. Who says, wait a minute, my goodness that you see, it doesn't come from me. Because there's only one who's good. There's only one who's the source of that goodness. And that's where my source is. And that's God. You need to have your eyes on Him. But that's because of the attitude. We're looking at attitudes that Jesus had towards the Father that are the evidence of His love for the Father, which is evidence of His knowledge of the Father's love for Him. See, when there's this kind of love, you're conscious of it, it shows in your life. And we saw in 1 John chapter 4, when you don't know this love, that's what shows in your life. Because John says if, you're don't love, if you love, that means you know, you love, you're born of God and you know God. But if you don't walk in love, it doesn't mean you're not born of God. It means you may be born of God, but you don't yet know by experience His love for you. You're not yet rooted and grounded in that love so that you can know together with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth and know the love of God, the Christ that passes understanding. All right. Now go with me to John 14. Get some exercise in your Bible today. John 14. See, what happens so often in reading Jesus' statements and what he did is the attitude that he had in his heart came out in things he said and the way he said them. So it's not like we've got 14 scriptures where Jesus said, I love the Father, I love the Father, the Father loves me, I love the Father. It's in the interaction of their relationships. But that's true in life, isn't it? You know, if we just sat here and said, you know, we've been married almost 47 years, and we just sat here and I looked at her and said, I love you, and she says, I love you back, I love you, I love you back, I love you back, I love you back. You know, that's fine, but it's in the way we live our life people ought to see that. When we're not aware anybody's looking, maybe the look or the touch of the hand, or just you can feel it in the relationship, and that's what we're trying to look into. We're trying to peek into this relationship, this intimate relationship that the Son had with the Father, a relationship of love. So where the father starts by saying, that's my boy, I'm well pleased in him. Somebody comes to Jesus and says, oh, you're so wonderful. He says, no, no, not me, it's him. So they're always pointing at each other. That's my son, I'm well pleased, you know, because he says it again later on. And Jesus says, no, no, but this is the one that's good. The source of my goodness, everything I do comes from him. And that's what we're looking at here in John 14. Because here Peter, uh, Philip comes, I know it began with a P. Philip comes to Jesus and says, Lord, show us the Father, verse 8, and it's sufficient for him. And Jesus said to him, have, have you been with me this long, and yet you don't know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. 
How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? We're so close. We're one. In the words that I speak to you, I don't speak in my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe on the sake of the works themselves. Now go to verse 31. The end of that chapter. Right before that, he's coming, beginning to bring things to a conclusion. He says, I no longer walk with you for the ruler of this world that Satan is coming, but he has nothing in me. Wouldn't that be a wonderful testimony? It comes to get a hold of you, but there's nothing he can get a hold of you. Why? Because all of you's died. And the only one living in you is Christ. There's nothing you can get a hold of in you. Verse 31. But that the world may know that I love the Father... As the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise and let us go from here. I began to, in praying some of this out, I've been praying about surrendering more of my life and praying out about giving more of my life and and, and the things over to Him so that He may reign in that place in my heart that belongs to Him and Him alone. I've been thanking Jesus. Thank you that you love me so much that you went to the cross. And I saw something this week. Yes, He loved me. And yes, he went to the cross for me, but his main motive for going for the cross is he loved the Father. His main motive for going to the cross was his love for the Father. And here he says, so that the world may know, have evidence that I love you, I go do as you commanded. So what Jesus is requiring of us, if you love me, you will do my follow my you will fulfill my commandments he's just telling us what he's done because i love the father i do as his commanded so the evidence of jesus's love for the father which we now as know as a response to the father's love for him the evidence of that is he was willing to go to the cross and obey his father no matter what it cost the evidence of his love for the Father. Now John chapter 17, and we'll end in here. What a powerful chapter this is. John 17, we're only going to look at a part of it. What this is, for those of you that may not understand, is Jesus in the last three chapters, 14, 15, and 16, has had his final discourse with his uh, meeting with his, his, his immediate disciples after Judas has betrayed them and after the... Uh, and, and partaken of the, what we call the Lord's Supper together. And now he's preparing to go out and he's going to go pray in the garden and commit his father, to his Father's will. And, and before he does that, he begins to talk to the Father. And this is the only insight we have. This is the longest insight we have into a conversation between the Father and the Son. And so this is what we're listening to, and there's three parts to it. The first part is the, Jesus talking to the Father about himself. The second part is Jesus talking to the Father about his immediate disciples. And then the third part, which is what we're going to look at, is Jesus talking to his, to his Father about you and me. So this first part is Jesus talking to his Father about himself. Jesus spoke these words and said, Father, the hours come, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. As you have given him, that's himself, authority over all of flesh, so that he should have, give eternal life to as many as you've given him, and this, etern- this is eternal life, that they may know you and the, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. For this reason I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work 
with which you've given me to do. That's Jesus with his Father. Now go down to verse 20. In the meantime, he's talked to the Father about the disciples. I don't pray for those alone, his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's that? That's you and me. We believe in him through the word of John. We believe in him through the word of Matthew. And although Luke was not part of that through Luke's word, we believe in him through the words that they shared with others that eventually were shared with us. Verse 21, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be perfect or complete in one. That the world may know that you have sent me and have, look at this, and have loved them as you have loved me. You know what that's saying? That's saying that God loves you just as much as He loves Jesus. The first time I read that verse and tried to say it out loud, I couldn't get the words out of my mouth because it didn't fit the image I had, the religious image. Well, you can't say God loves you as much as Jesus, but He said it. (laughs) And He said it to His Father. So He better not be fudging it at all. And He won't. He isn't, of course. That they may know This is what we're looking for. That they may know that you love them as much as you love me. So Jesus is... Remember he's up there interceding for us right now? He's praying. Part of his prayer is that you and I would come to a revelation that God loves you just as much as he loves Jesus. Wow! Say this with me. God loves me me. just as much as as He loves Jesus. Jesus. Let's say that again. God loves me me. just as much as As He loves Jesus. Jesus. You ought to to put that on your mirror and put the Scripture reference because your mind's going to need to know it's in the Bible. But how could he love me that much? You're looking at yourself. You're not looking at him. He is love. He is love and there's no partiality with him. In fact, he says, well, if you act in partiality in James chapter 2 and 3, if you, if you are partial towards one over another, you're not acting in a godly way. That means he's not partial in how he gives his love out. We'll have to finish this up. Verse 25. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. I want to read that again that the love with which you loved me, Father, the love that you have with which you've loved me may now be in 
them. Romans chapter 5, Paul talks about the tribulation that he went through. And he says, I've learned to glory in tribulation. I'm not sure I'm there yet. I've learned to glory in tribulation because I understand something. The tribulation produces patience, steadfastness. Why? Because he was grounded in God's love for him. Produces steadfastness. And steadfastness produces, some translations say, proven character. And proven character produces hope, a confident expectation of what's going to happen when he returns. Because I was faithful. No matter what storms came against me, no matter whether it was life or death or angels or principalities or powers or things present or things to come or height nor depth nor any great thing, Paul says, no matter what came against me, it didn't move me because I wasn't grounded on those things. I was grounded in his love for me. Paul says, therefore, all these things progressively lead to this confidence that when he comes back, I'm going to be standing. And the confidence that I have, that hope I have, is because the love of God has been shed abroad, poured out in our hearts, our spirits, by the Spirit of God. So many times that scripture is used to, to care to us, we have God's love in us to give away, and that's true, but I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. Because the context Paul's talking about is something by which we have confidence and hope in. And he's saying there, the hope and confidence you have for whatever's to come, whatever that is, is because God's proof of his love for you was shown when he shed abroad his spirit in your heart. Just as when the spirit of God was descended on Jesus and he says, that's my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Just as in Galatians 4 when Paul says, and the proof of God's love for you that you are his son is God has sent forth his spirit into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So he's poured his love out in answer to Jesus' prayer that the love with which you've loved me may now be in them. God's love that God had for Jesus, his heart's pressure, desire for him, his passion for him, his loving of him. Jesus is saying, I know you've loved them, but now I want praying that that revelation of that love that you've had for me may be poured out in them through the Holy Spirit. So he's in us to reveal the love of God that he has for us. But we have to help him by taking these scriptures and meditating on them. Because our, it's renewing your mind. Because our mind have had built up through us through our childhood. Our mind has been built up through us through school and our experiences. The image of what we're like and that we're not really lovable. At least not by God. Not as much as Jesus. Because I'm not as righteous as Him. I'm not, I'm not perfect. I don't, I'm not as faithful as Him. Not, I'm not Jesus. So how could He love me that much? It's renewing your mind to the Word of God. Because it's not based on you. It's based on Him. I'll end with this way. I shared with you as we began some of these studies a quote from Charles Spurgeon about worship. He said there's a progression to it. It begins with wonder, awe, wow, God, whoa, God, just like looking at a beautiful painting or a sunset. And he says it progresses after a while in your relationship it progresses to reverence the holiness of God, the presence of God, the weightiness of God. But as you mature in that relationship, 
what begins to come through is the third step, which is where Jesus walked, which is the love for God. I worship you because I love you. And not just with my words, but with my life honors you. My words when I'm not in church honor you. My attitudes that nobody can see honor you because I love you, because I've got a glimpse of who you are. I love you. I love that song. You wrote that song, didn't you? That first song. I love you and worship you because of who you are. Let's pray. Father, what can we say to these things? We stand in awe of you. We stand, Father, in reverence for you. We want to grow to the place where our worship comes out of love and devotion to you. It's not a duty. Where our prayer is not a duty. Where our study and our reading our Bible is not a duty. But it's out of a desire to know you more and to love you more. Bring us past religion into the relationship that you've paid for with the blood of your son that we may enter into the fullness that he paid for for us as sons and daughters of the living God. For that grace, we thank you. In Jesus' name.